Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Perhaps the most transformative thing happening in Europe right now is happening in Moldova. For years, the Eastern European country was consumed by its own corruption. Now, after a shocking couple of weeks, one anti-graft campaigner has become prime minister with a mandate to clean up the rot. Last night, viewers of America's Democratic primary debate were treated to some of the rough and tumble of the campaigns to come. And tonight holds more. Pay attention. Historical data show that these debates move the needle far more than the much more widely watched general election debates. First up, though. In Libya, the capital is under attack. Rebel warlord Khalifa Haftar has been mounting an assault on Tripoli since April. He wants to claim the city and the country as his own. His forces already control three-quarters of Libya and its largest oil fields. It's the country's third internal conflict in almost a decade. It's been eight years since Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown in 2011. We are told that Gaddafi is dead. The Libyan freedom fighters have finally succeeded. I think today is a day to remember all of Colonel Gaddafi's victims. The country has been in chaos ever since. The putative Government of National Accord, the GNA, is holed up in Tripoli, barely keeping the lights on, its influence extending not much farther than the city limits. Yesterday, the GNA claimed to have retaken the strategic town of Garyan, which Mr. Haftar has been using to support his assault on Tripoli. Back in April, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, tried to broker a peace deal. It is clear we have a very dangerous situation. Mr. Guterres met with the GNA and Mr. Haftar's Libya National Army, but to no avail. I said I was deeply concerned and that I had a heavy heart with the possibility of a serious confrontation in and around Tripoli. Unfortunately, until now, that feeling has been entirely confirmed. Mr. Haftar rejected a UN peace plan that would have given him a share of power in the country and instead moved violently on the capital. Nearly 750 people have died in the fighting. But in some parts of the city, life goes on almost normally. I arrived back in Tripoli for the first time in something like four years and was surprised by ostensibly how little it had been changed by the conflict. Nicholas Pelham is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. There were children playing on the beaches, the fairgrounds were buzzing with life, the cafes were, were buzzing until late at night. It really felt like that this was a, a city that was going about business as usual, remarkably unfazed by uh, the war, that you could hear 10 kilometers or so from the center of town. So about that conflict and, and that shelling, what, what's the, the sort of the shape of the conflict now in Tripoli? So you have these multiple competitors to try and fill the vacuum that's been left by the collapse of uh, Colonel Muhammad Gaddafi. And at the moment, one of his former generals, Khalifa Haftar, he seems overwhelmingly the most powerful. He's uh, taken something like three quarters of, of the country. He's taken most of the oil fields. And his next target, which he believes is going to give him control of the country, is to take the capital, whose security is really um, a plethora of, of neighborhood militias. 
So, so we have this retired general back in the game and a kind of ragtag group of forces he's assembled against uh, a bunch of kind of rebel militias. What about the, the national government? There is a, a government which has UN backing, which was formed precisely to try and bring Libya's composite forces uh, together. And its whole purpose, is raison d'etre, was to try to reach out to Haftar and other militias, other warlords, and, and bring them into a, a united government. And it looked on the verge of being successful. In uh, April, you had the UN Secretary General come to Tripoli. He went to meet Haftar. He went to meet uh, other rebel groups. And the UN had announced in 10 days' time there was going to be a, a gathering in southern Libya of all these composite forces. And it was at that moment that uh, Haftar decided to launch his attack on, on Tripoli. What have been the effects then of, of a country without a government for all of that time? Libya is a vast country. It's more like a collection of city-states, which have been really running themselves much since 2011. And what is the only sort of fabric that holds them together is a central revenue stream that comes from oil. The international community has put pressure on Haftar and others to say that they have to continue funneling uh, oil revenues to uh, the national oil company. Those then get transferred to the central bank. And so essentially the government is little more than a clearing system. It's providing salaries to militias and fighters on all sides and civil servants and uh, municipalities. And that's pretty much what, what the government is. So why has the government then struggled so much to, to establish itself, to, to, to get legitimacy and, and a following? The rebel groups, the armed groups, and have to have guns, and the government doesn't. The limited guns that it has tend to come from uh, the rebel groups themselves. It's very much dependent on the goodwill of the rebel forces and city militias for any reach that it has. You don't really see any sign of kind of government initiatives. And, and yet you say that the, the feel of Tripoli anyway is, is that things are, are, are kind of strangely normal. I mean, they, they might I'm, be putting on a brave face here. You don't have to go very far out of the center of time before that mm, sense of um, relative harmony begins to utterly distort. Civilian cars start to uh, disappear as you head a few kilometers south. Um, they're replaced by more and more military vehicles. Shops uh, begin to close. Uh, you see far fewer civilians on, on the street. And indeed, we went to a, a field hospital where you felt, felt a real sense of threat. The doctors were telling us that they felt they were going to be targeted. Every night, we're just waiting, praying to, to not to hit us. There was visible fear, fear on their faces about what nighttime would bring, what the next bombardment, what the next shelling would bring. They think that we are supporting the against side, so we are like a legal target. But you know, it's a humanitarian job. So we don't have any choice. We choose to be doctors and nurses, so. The reason why there were so few civilians on the streets is because they had uh, fled into, into town. Families that we would meet in the central town said that they were catering for tens of thousands. I think the UN now says that there are almost 100,000 displaced. Uh, schools are beginning to fill up. We met families who crammed into classrooms. Uh, there was a, a nurse who'd lost uh, her home and was there with her family and was utterly distraught. Stop. If you live. Stop. You've got a sense of the suffering that had now engulfed many Libyans. And so what do those Libyans want? I mean, they, they got rid of one dictator, now they have this mess. How, how do they see their way out of it? What would they like to happen? The overriding feeling was one of a curse on a plague on all your houses. There was a real sense of you know, militias on all sides, people with guns on all sides had run amok and were using their power to uh, stamp their hold uh, and serve themselves and in the process destroying their country.
And so how do you think it will play out in Tripoli then? Do you, do you think Mr. Haftar's bid to, to take the city will work? Yeah, we were very much on, on one side of the, the lines. What we saw and what we heard uh, came from the people who were uh, fighting Haftar. But we also got a sense that they'd been pretty successful in dulling his, his what had been a, a surprise attack. They had held him at bay. He himself is in the east of the country. It's a vast country. Sort of, He's over a thousand kilom- kilometers away. His supply lines are overstretched. I think there's a sense that without sort of major external support, he is beginning to run out of, of steam. What do, you, what do you mean by external support? There's extensive support coming from uh, Egypt, from the United Arab Emirates, um, perhaps financial support as well from Saudi Arabia. Haftar can look back at a, a previous siege when he took uh, Libya's second city, Benghazi. He can call that a victory of sorts, but it was really a pyrrhic victory because you know, the old town of Benghazi, the kind of the, the, the palaces and the colonnaded squares were reduced to, to rubble, and he smashed the life out of the city and depopulated uh, what had been a, a, a thriving port. And there's a, a real risk that the same could now happen again in Tripoli. Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. Jason, it's a pleasure to be here. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. You might not have been following Moldovan politics very closely, but over the past few weeks, the country has become an unlikely beacon of hope for Europeans weary of graft. I have a message to the entire world. Moldova is finally free. And we would like to thank everybody who helped us in these difficult times. I've been visiting Moldova for years, and it always seemed like a sad, quaint, charming little country which was doomed to suffering the yoke of corruption. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it has a chance to escape that. Matt Steinglass is our deputy Europe editor and a keen corruption watcher. Moldova is a small landlocked country between Romania and Ukraine. Uh, It used to be a Soviet republic. So for the last few decades, it's been kind of in a tug of war between Russia on the one side and the country's desire to turn towards the European Union on the other side. And the Americans would also like it to move towards the West. But really, the big struggle in Moldova is corruption. It's an extremely corrupt country, maybe the most corrupt country in Europe. There's massive laundering of dirty Russian money through the so-called Russian laundromat, a series of banks that are used to pass money through into the EU. The country is basically run by a set of oligarchs, and for the last few years, actually, just one oligarch. But what's happened over the last few weeks is that almost miraculously, the anti-corruption forces have come to power. And the corrupt oligarch is now on the run. So who is this oligarch and and how did he get to to wield such power over the country? The oligarch is named Vlad Plahotniuk. 
And uh, he started out as a rough-and-tumble businessman in the oil sector and in banking. Then he got control over a couple of television stations and some other media, which is very useful to have if you're going to go into politics. And he then became the head of the Democratic Party, which is a sort of technically pro-EU party, but that was basically a front for him to gain control over the entire political system. Moldovan politics are prone to having MPs sort of switch sides based on whoever seems like the most powerful at the moment, and they often switch sides based on bribes or on blackmail. Vladimir Plahotniuk eventually gained control over the National Anti-Corruption Committee and over the Constitutional Court. And whenever these big scandals came up, which they did periodically in Moldova, strangely enough, it was only Plahotniuk's enemies who would get prosecuted and thrown in jail, and his allies would remain untouched. Now, Vladimir Plahotniuk has always denied having anything to do with corruption and says he's simply a businessman and a politician who is concerned with making sure that Moldova enters the European Union at some point. So you mentioned that there's then this sort of collection of anti-corruption forces allied against him. Who are they? What's that about? The two biggest leaders of the anti-corruption forces are Maya Sandu. She was Harvard-educated and she worked at the European Union. She became education minister for a couple of years under reformist government about five years ago, and she became famous for cleaning up the examination system. The other big leader of the anti-reform movement is Andre Nastase. He used to be a prosecutor and was known as an honest prosecutor, and the two of them became the biggest leaders of a national protest movement in about 2014. So they were leading big demonstrations. Tens of thousands of people would turn out in Chisinau to demonstrate against the government. Those demonstrations eventually drove one government out of power. But they were basically locked out of actually succeeding in politics themselves while Plahodnik was running the show. Wait a minute. You said the big move in Moldova is that these anti-corruption forces have come to power. How has that come to be then if they were kind of locked out? So they held elections in February... And there are basically three big parties that emerged from those elections, each with like a quarter to a third of the vote. One was the anti-corruption movement led by Maya Sandu. Another was the Socialist Party, which is a pro-Russian party, more or less. And the president, Igor Dodon, is from the Socialist Party. And then you had the third force, Plautnyuk, the Democrats. And what happened gradually, there were very long coalition negotiations, they weren't going anywhere, but eventually the United States and the EU on the one side who back Maya Sandu and the anti-corruption party and Russia on the other side who backed the socialists came together and both sent envoys to Moldova who said, look, if the two of you guys can team up and form a government, we will back you and you can chase Plahotnik out. And A couple of days after those visits by outside envoys, the socialists and the anti-corruption forces managed to cut a deal. And Maya Sandu, this anti-corruption activist who always seemed like she was going to be locked on the outside, was suddenly prime minister of the country. And so what's happened then to Mr. Plahotniuk? He has fled the country, and it's not entirely clear where he is. He stepped down as head of the Democratic Party on Monday, 
And with him out of the driver's seat, that party is starting to come apart. But Maya Sandu and the government are going after all of the corruption cases that were blocked for the last five years. So all the oligarchs, all the people who sided with Plotnyuk and everybody who has a dirty conscience in Moldovan politics for the last five years are suddenly terrified that they're going to wind up in jail in a few years. So so after all of those years then, as you say, under the, the yoke of, of corruption, things seem to be changing really quite fast. Yeah, I've been visiting Moldova for years, and I've interviewed Vlad Plahotniuk and Maya Sandu extensively. When you would go visit Vlad Plahotniuk, you would get picked up by a black Mercedes and chauffeured over to his office building and greeted by his gorgeous receptionist and taken upstairs to his big office. And his personally owned television stations would be playing on big TV screens. And then, you know, he would come in in a beautiful black suit with a snazzy Italian shirt on. And it was just swimming in wealth and oligarchic power. And then you would go talk to Maya Sandu. And she was in a disheveled old czarist house on a back street with a few 25-year-old guys tapping away on laptops. The contrast between these two figures is so intense, and it never seemed plausible that Maya Sandu would actually be able to amass the power that she would need in order to take over the country and clean it up the way that she wanted to. And then suddenly, in the space of the last three weeks, the entire political system has been upended, and Maya Sandu is prime minister and is getting ready to try to put Vlad Plotnyuk in jail. And that is just extraordinary. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Sure thing. Last night at the first Democratic primary debate, candidates worked to differentiate themselves from the crowded field. Several answered questions in Spanish or strained to produce moments that might take off on social media. Tonight, the second half of the candidates take to the stage including big hitters Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders. But given all this pageantry, can these debates change anything? Political debates and primary contests can matter quite a bit. Elliot Morris is a data journalist and avid poll watcher at The Economist. Contrary to the conventional wisdom about general election debates, where voters don't necessarily change their mind, they're coming to basically tune out the other side and root for their team, in primary debates, voters do change their mind. They will listen to certain policy positions. They'll listen to how candidates present themselves, and they will adjust their expectations accordingly. So we can expect that last night's debates can move the needle for candidates. How, how much can it move the needle, though? Well, as an example, Hillary Clinton's polling numbers increased by about nine percentage points after her first debate in 2015. Donald Trump, who, of course, won his party's nomination, also saw a similar four percentage point increase. But going back over time, these are slightly larger than we should expect, and we can analyze those differences with a data set of polling that covers 1976 to 2016. Analyzing these data, we trace the movement for each candidate's polling average from the night of the debate to two weeks after. And on average, we should expect the average candidate to increase or decrease their position in the polls by about 6%. Not percentage points, 6% of their standing before the debate. 6%, yeah. Right. Yeah, so that could be, you know, if they're polling really well, it's more. If they're not polling well, it's less. Doesn't sound like that much, though. Well, 6% is not a lot by itself. When compared to debates that happen in the election year, so January or February, they can have larger impacts on the order of 13% on average. The Iowa caucuses have even larger effects. They can change a candidate's average position by about 20 to 30%. And Super Tuesday, the big mega caucus 
in March can have an even larger effect. But the 6% increase or decrease is quite a bit larger than you'd expect in your typical run-of-the-mill week. So do you have any sense from the data how how those the, the magnitude of those changes might change when there are a million people on the stage? Well, because we scarcely have nominating contests with this many candidates, it's hard to say. On the one hand, this means that there's more variance in the polling data, which just means that candidates increase or decrease their position more. We know that from the historical data set. On the other hand, it could be that voters are more locked into their decisions about minor candidates and they sort of refuse to let them go. So we see this with the candidate Andrew Yang, who's sort of running on this platform of progressive economics and really drawing on a lot of internet-based and youth-based support. I would be surprised if his numbers change nearly as much as someone like Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg. And so all told, do you think that tonight's debates, last night's debates, will change the field or or just sort of only slightly reshuffle the pack? I would expect some people to start dropping out this fall when it sort of dawns on them that they can't raise enough money to continue their campaign and they will not have enough support come Iowa next year. Elliot, thank you very much for your time. Happy to be here. To learn more about two of the candidates who will appear in tonight's debate, Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang, listen to The Economist Asks, our interview show. Mr. Buttigieg explained how he hopes to stand out in a crowded field. Uh, I'll be uh, the only person up there who is governing as we speak uh, in a middle uh, Midwestern American city uh, and has that on-the-ground experience of local government at a time when we would be well-served to start making Washington look a little more like our best-run cities and towns rather than the other way around. There are far too many people where I live who voted for this president, not because they were under any illusions about his character, but because they were so disillusioned with our politics and with our economy that they effectively voted to burn the house down, voting for somebody they didn't even like in order to send a message. If we're not responsive to that, if we look like we are serving up more of the same from Washington, uh, then I fear that paradoxically, that effort to play it safe is how Democrats could lose and this president could cruise to a second term. For more, search for The Economist Asks in your podcast app. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. 
where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.